Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Wild Isle podcast. I have today with me the evil, dark wizard, Nathaniel Cumberledge. Yep, and it's me again. Third time's the charm. Hopefully this is going to be the best episode. Uh, this is definitely going to be a fun one. This is going to be a little bit more conversational. Uh, this has been some things I've been thinking about in terms of writing and literature. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, both Nate and I are authors. Um, and I'm going to shill for a second while I'm bringing up the topic. Because I have a novel out, Wand Smoke Broken, a weird um, pseudo-Western fantasy novel uh, featuring a blind drug addict and a hyper psoriasis stricken little girl as they delve into evil magic and become heroes. Um, you can find that amongst other things on my website, wildislelit.com. Amongst those other things are my editing services. If you are an author and you want to have your manuscript edited, uh, please you know, check out my services. I really like working with you guys. Um, it helps me get better. Uh, as I help you get better and we both learn from the process and then you have something ready to put out to market. Aside from that, I have a couple other things coming up. If you're a Wheeling local and you happen to be uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, and you happen to be listening to this, I'm going to have a lecture called The Philosophy of Writing. Uh, the first five lectures, part one, are going to start in January and they'll be weekly uh, for that whole that month. And it's going to be at the uh, Ohio County Public Library, uh, free for all who are coming. So uh, just show up, and I would really enjoy having you there. I think this is going to be really both fun and educational. It's an excuse for me to teach philosophy through writing, and you are going to learn to write better, and you need to learn to write better because probably you're functionally illiterate, and probably if you're an adult, your kids are functionally illiterate, and you know maybe you shouldn't you shouldn't be illiterate in a modern society. Uh, <laughs> also, if you have me listening to this when it goes uh, live. Um, in a couple days on Christmas Eve, I'm going to be releasing uh, text and audio for a Christmas short story. Uh, it's set in my Wand Smoke universe. It's called uh, Red Cap. So uh, it's, a, it's a bit of like a Christmas horror story. If you like uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, you're going to love this one. And it, it's really great if you've seen my work. If you haven't, I really recommend you check it out. Uh, first chapter for my novel is free, and I'm going to be coming out with a collection of short stories here in the next few months, hopefully, depending on how fast this goes. All right, did I shill everything that I have? I think that I did. I'm All right, sure that's it so far. Yeah. All right. Um, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, just writing in general. I think where do I want to start? Um, before we get into the fun stuff, we're going to talk a little bit about like power fantasies, wish fulfillment. Uh, but before we get into that, um, a long time ago, we used to have conversations, Nate, about the differences between uh, genre fiction and literary fiction. I think I want to start there, and then we can kind of play around with a, a number of topics. So, um, yeah, in your, in your uh, let's say, assessment, what are the differences between genre and literary fiction? Do you draw a line between those two things? Uh, I generally don't, but uh, I've seen most people would say, I guess, genre fiction is generally solely for entertainment versus literary fiction is supposed to have some kind of higher goal, but I would argue that, that is not the case, but I, I, that's just my assumption of what those people think. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. Um, because I would ask, what story does not have 
a theme and by theme i mean like a, a thesis a meaning something that it is demonstrating to the reader is true about life right like i've never read a story that doesn't have that yeah i mean there are certainly stories that are very clumsy and like convey something that isn't true as a theme but um i wouldn't say there's anything that doesn't have a theme like generally even if you're not conscious of it your work is going to try and convey something about what you think and feel about the world yeah so given that that is the case that like no matter what really you're going to have a deeper meaning why is there this distinction like what is it that people are uh seeing people like to read books that make them feel smart so that they can brag that they are smart to all of their fellow smart people on like forums and the twitter.com or the academia so that would be like what literary fiction then that's like the that would be my, yeah i mean not to say that all fiction labeled as literary fiction is bad but in my mind it's usually a red flag to be honest yeah i mean i I definitely see that, saw that quite a lot, um, particularly when I was in grad school. If you go to grad school for creative writing, it's more and more accepted nowadays um, that you'll see, you know, fantasy writers, science fiction writers, um, you know, people doing things like, I don't know, westerns or uh, romance, actually. There's a disgusting amount of uh, romance and erotica uh, to the point where there was a, oh, I should talk about this, I hope I don't get in any trouble. One of the uh, people I graduated with, she read excerpts from her work, and all she wrote was microfiction of, it's not an exaggeration to say pornographic erotica. <laughs> and part of our graduation, uh, it's not really part of the ceremony, it's more like a thing that we each had to do is read about 10 minutes of an excerpt of her work. And so when she got up to read it, and this is in front of an audience of people. So it's not just like your fellow classmates. It's also like family members and like this, you know, a room full of like a hundred people or something. And she's, and she's reading uh, about uh, like a girl uh, giving a guy, I think it was like giving a guy a hand job bouncing up and down or something like it's <laughs> anyway. Um, that's a little bit uh, off topic. It was fucking hilarious, is what it was. But um, yeah, you did see a lot of the literary fiction pushed more strongly, particularly in the things that we were assigned in graduate school, as a means of making literature seem more academic, I think. Yeah. Um, though, what I. Tell me what you think about this. So I'm not sitting here rambling the whole time. I actually think often literary fiction appeals to people who happen to be lower in trait openness on the big five personality scale. So, uh, my, my idea behind that is when the higher someone becomes on trait openness, the more they become, uh, I would describe them as mythological in their orientation. Like they start to see the world through connotations yeah. uh, as opposed to, I hate to say being less imaginative because it's not exactly right, but I've noticed essentially what makes literary fiction literary fiction typically is the setting it's we could be talked about how the, the, all stories have a theme so yeah. what is it that makes it literary well it's usually set in it whenever it was written a contemporary setting with no science fiction or supernatural elements typically yeah i mean i suppose um but of course there's like there's 
there's stories set in very mundane mundane and modern settings that are also not literary. So, like, uh, things like Jack Carr and Tom Clancy stuff, while set in their contemporary, are very pulp. Like, they're not particularly deep. Well, yeah, they're not particularly deep. They're just exploring contemporary settings and issues through action-adventure tales. But... Yeah. So that's so my difference there isn't exactly uh what we say all encompassing. There's some missing elements. Yeah, there's something about I I'm not sure that an author writing something necessarily makes that distinction while he's writing. Like uh somebody like um I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh who's the guy who wrote Inf uh, Infinite Jest? Anyway, I don't think he sat down with the conscious thought that I'm going to write something of grand literary import or whatever. Uh, he just wrote something, and it happened to be picked up by people who were, like, of a literary persuasion. So, and I think that's what a lot of people... Um, I think the difference between good and bad literary fiction is that... I that the conscious effort. It's like, am I trying to write something for literary appeal? And if that is the case, it is likely not very good. That has been my experience as well. It comes off as contrived. Yes. Um, and I think that's because we don't. Uh, my argument would be we don't really know uh, consciously uh, what. I'm going to start that over now. When you're writing a literary piece, whether it is couched in uh, the trappings of genre fiction or not, uh, what you're doing is you're you're writing out an argument. Now, that argument is what is demonstrated through the theme of the work. I would argue, which is a little bit of a different definition than most, uh, you know, most books. If you're in academia, you're going to look up the, the theme, and there it basically is interchangeable with a motif in the definition that they give. I think that's useless and redundant. Um, the way I look at theme is the root, the etymology, and it shares a root with thesis. And it makes much more sense to consider the, the thesis of a work, its central truth claim that it's, it's making as its theme. And then when you look at a useful theme, a useful theme of, uh, answers a question that is relevant to the people who are going to be reading it and that you don't already have an answer to. And I think that's why when you try, like someone tries to write like literary fiction or, or, or fiction of literary merit, we can say, yeah, it's always going to come across as, uh, let's say, superficial and uh, I don't want to use the word contrived again, but I can't think of a better word because they're coming to the, the problem probably already with an answer. Right. So they're not solving any problems. They're like just, well, I've got here's my philosophy, man, and I'm just gonna put it in here. It's, it, uh, it's like a cheap allegory, I yeah. would say. Um so then we have you know, uh we talk a lot about literary fiction. Um I've had some frustrations though with genre fiction, like straight genre fiction as well. So um I'll start off talking about the uh, Dresden Files, which I'm supposed to read the third book. I should have read it like months ago, but I just keep reading other things because I don't want to read it. Uh, <laughs> and I find it to be, let's say, as thin as the bad literary fiction that I've read, if that makes sense. Um, and you could tell me, Nate, what's, what's going on here. So I'm reading these books um, and 
I'm not, let's say, I'm, I'm actually not really getting any theme really at all, other than like maybe, uh, you know, the good guy wins in the end, something like that. Okay, um, so like, I'm vaguely familiar with the Dresden Files, I've not read them. But I knew a lot of people who I was friends with and stuff that were into them at one point. Um, but from my understanding, it's like a supernatural police procedural. So by its nature, it's probably not going to have a super deep theme. But uh, also, caveat, I barely read anything published after 1990. So... My perspective on some of these topics today about modern literary fiction may be uh, couched in my limited experience. Well, that's actually a really good shifting point because I, I was trying to get here is I, you know, I don't like reading a lot of modern fiction either. And I find that um, in a weird way, it's there's like stylistic and editorial choices in modern fiction that you do not see made in older fiction. That then that I think strips some of the soul out of a lot of modern work. I think a big aspect of this is that a lot of people um, are uh, not writers first and writing because they have a passion to write or they have a passion for reading. They typically um, they typically are passionate about another medium, such as. Uh, I don't know, comic books, manga, video games, or something, but they feel the need to tell a story, but one of the most thought-of, typically accessible means of telling a story is the written word. So, like, they're taking these conventions and ideas and stuff from these other mediums that are playing to their strengths and trying to convey them through a medium that they aren't necessarily geared towards. And that is going to come through corrupt, corrupted of sorts. So, like, the same storytelling techniques don't always work across genres, or not genres, but mediums. Yeah, so that, if I hop back on the Dresden Files, it reminds me of, like, a um, detective TV show. Yes. That's exactly what it reminds me of. The, down to the formula, or, like, the, it, the, the formula reminds me of what people talk about when they're talking about a screenplay. Right. Yeah. Um, and if I think about it, like, you know, to make a good screenplay is obviously very difficult, but it's funny because on the other side, it's very easy to write a bad screenplay because you hardly have to really write anything of depth because it, it, right. And so then if I expand a bad screenplay and just fill in the gaps, now I have uh, the Dresden files. Yeah. But <laughs> then, yeah, you fall into on the topic of bad writing being easier than good writing, this is where you fall into the trap of people who can't write a thing, pouching their attempt in irony and self-parody in an attempt to be like, oh, I'm just pretending to be bad when no, you're just you're just not very good. And uh, I see that with minimalism as well. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's good minimalist writers. Yeah. But what I notice is it's much if if you can't write. Uh, let's say a well-constructed complex sentence, something, you know, uh, that, or you can't really employ figurative language very well. Um, what you can do is say, well, I just like to let the word speak for itself. <laughs> Someone said that in grad school and, uh, I just wanted to, to, to kill them. Uh, 
<laughs> because it was such obvious it was, such a, it was such obvious bullshit. It's like, no, no, no. You can't do anything with the language itself. Like the, So instead of giving any type of description of anything, you just kind of say it happened in like a fourth grade writing level and then claim like I'm deep man. <laughs> right? Because I mean, surely you've, you've at the very least uh, seen that somewhere. I probably have. And no examples spring to mind, probably because they're not memorable. But, uh, yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. Yeah, that, like, minimalism. And then uh, another thing I noticed in older work that you don't see because of the hyper-awareness of editorial standards, uh -huh. um, there are things that are inefficient, technically speaking, but that when you strip them out, kill the character of the uh i'm gonna sound pretentious for a second the voice of the author yeah. right like it, like nothing uh my my favorite uh author lovecraft like nothing that he wrote would ever 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 be published today oh at once <laughs> for more reasons than one and mm -hmm. i'm not even saying that it's always exactly pleasant to read you know parts of his work but at the same time i'm kind of glad <laughs> for the errors and for the the inefficiencies and for the awkwardness because if you take it away you lose something oh absolutely um a dry anybody can like on the topic kind of like minimalism like anybody can deliver a super dry sequence of events right it's just you you need that flavor of inefficiency otherwise um it's not but this is also why pulp is good and uh <laughs> lovecraft yeah. and robert e howard are masterful storytellers because like pulp didn't care they were just like they were trying to crunch words out they were trying to move magazines they didn't have a lot of editorial stuff other than like a dude read it he's like oh this is good ship it off sort yeah. of mentality you get that um i've got a couple more of the like the last few canon stories i still have to get through but one thing I noticed reading them, you can tell when Howard had his like single sit down sessions of writing because certain words will get used a little bit too repetitiously uh -huh. in that way that like when the word comes to you, you start to use it over and over and over again, and then it'll stop. And it's like, okay, you sat down at your typewriter, and then you walked away and came back. Uh, but and anytime he uses a big cat metaphor, oh my god, I don't know how many so times. many big cat. That's not even getting up and sitting down. That's just he moved like a lion. No, no, it's always a panther. Yeah, like every single time yeah. with the with the suppleness and strength of a panther. <laughs> but at the same time, it starts to become like this little. Uh, defining characteristic. Like as soon as you see it, you know who wrote it, and. <laughs> It becomes uh, it becomes kind of this fun little bit, even though you would say from a modern perspective that it was bad. Yeah. But then, uh, you know, I, I kind of look at this with uh, uh, a martial arts metaphor, right? So there's like there 100% uh, is a most efficient way to utilize human body mechanics to fight. But the problem is if everyone does the same thing, then it means that you're never going to surprise anybody. Right. So now everyone knows exactly how to fight you. If you're fighting in the 100% most mechanically sound way, you're going to do the same things every single time, which means that uh, you're going to lose fights that you could otherwise win if you did something innovative that 
uh, let's say technically is less efficient and is therefore wrong in air quotes, but when you do it, you, you win. And I think for writing, there's the same exact thing. There's like, well, you shouldn't do this, but the fact that you do it in a way that let's say it's not, it's not the, it's not the uniqueness. It's not just that it's different, but it, it touches on something that otherwise would be missed. Um, yeah, I'm starting to notice that quite a lot, especially uh, depending on, you know, if, if you, I don't know, Nate, if you had people like edit your work and. I don't show anybody my work. Oh, you're going to show anybody work? Still not there yet. You said author in the beginning. No, nah, I'm a hobbyist. I ain't published yet. So uh, I'll get you know, the, uh, I might get there someday. Nathan, for you guys that listen, Nathan's one of those authors who's good but too self-conscious. So you need to <laughs> write something and not destroy it. Yeah. Um, but but no, I've had people, um, I've seen people edit each other's works and they recommend a change. You can see, okay, I know why you made that decision because it'll be another author or something like that or a professor. And it's like, yes, that does make it more efficient, mm -hmm. but I can tell you didn't read it out loud. Because when you read it out loud, it just, it'll like kill the entire flow and cadence of the sentence, the way it sounds, the peculiar uh, peculiarities to the voice. Again, it would be like going to Edgar Allan Poe and start like hacking away at his word. You could, right? It's yeah. so easy. Just chop, 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 chop. And it's like, well, then now you've killed Edgar Allan Poe. Like you're the murderer who left him dead in that damn ass. Big, big editing and its consequences have been a disaster for fiction writing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, yeah, it's, it's something I have particular qualms with. I would say yeah, that I didn't think about that before, but it does lead lend credence to why a lot of modern fiction feels very sterile. Yeah, well, there's also the demand I think to because uh, this is this is always worth. Uh, thinking about so interjecting a little bit of philosophy here um, the Taoists point out that there are two different types of people and they distinguish them as being the high and the low and the lower and the majority and the higher and the minority this is all like Nietzsche same thing like you have the higher man right yeah and in order to write to appeal to the most people you actually do need to reduce your standards to people who don't have let's say discerning enough taste to notice a lot of the things that get chopped out and they also don't have the capacity to appreciate things that uh let's say are complex or unpleasant enough at first that they dissuade them from reading so like when I first started reading Lovecraft, for instance, I actually had to learn how to read Lovecraft. <laughs> you have to learn to like pause at weird and unnatural times to make the sentences work. Cause otherwise like the sentence goes on for a paragraph and it's like, I'm out of breath and I've forgotten what the hell I was even talking about. Yeah. Um, but as you practice, as you get better. Oh yeah. Reading out loud to yourself, your own stuff or somebody else's stuff is actually very useful. I don't know if you talked about that on here before, but um, I don't think I have, but yeah, absolutely. One should do it. And when you do, oh, it's so funny. I did this, um, uh, an ex-girlfriend, right? So, um, big, we talk about the Dresden files again, big fan. Right. And I, uh, we had a bit of a spat at the beginning of the relationship because I, I assumed that it was going to be lowbrow, 
garbage and it was you know one of our precious series so of course she felt offended <laughs> but later on i picked up one of the books that she had and i just started reading it out loud and at that point she had um read some other things that i had shown her um or at least i had read the bits of them to her so she knew what they sounded like and had been un it's like you know you can't unsee what you have seen so then okay so you like for instance uh i read and make someone appreciate or I mean, her appreciate would say i don't know blood meridian cormac mccarthy i love blood meridian so much yes and I'm, once you can I'm glad you love blood meridian yes it's so fucking beautiful um <laughs> terrible and evil as it is but uh once you understand and it can appreciate let's say mccarthy then i go back and read these punchy i call them typewriter sentences because they all kind of sound like this and the voice always becomes like this and every sentence is this because of the way it's constructed and no matter what you do once i've once you've heard me read it like this you read sentences they read like this <laughs> i'm harry dresden i'm the good guy he's the bad guy here's my little bit of moralizing i'm going to tell you everything three times <laughs> like but i'm not kidding and and that's really the effect you can have from reading work out loud and if you're an author like yeah read your own work out loud and make sure that that isn't happening there are some elements of that that come from like writing as a job it's like at a certain point you just write in a very boring way because you're pumping out loads of stories like i don't know much about this guy but i know he's prolific so i would assume that he's just trying to trying to write a bunch of stuff in a timely manner but at the same time a lot of stuff that i've that's that i like has been written on a schedule before it's just i don't know maybe it's just different different philosophies of uh approach to that same kind of writing for profit motive like not to say and i'm not even saying writing for profit is necessarily bad like a lot of your favorite fiction and stuff even to this day folks is probably not churned out for the most noble of motivations but yeah. well i mean to me i'm i'm like freaking evil capitalist uh and capistani right so like i don't care what the motivation for the author is it can be purely profit um but i do see that typically when profit becomes the primary motive like when the author doesn't want to write this next book but needs to keep the the, the money flowing in yeah then you start to see uh, essentially a lack of attention to detail but i think beyond that you see them writing to where the money is and where's the money in writing lowbrow stuff. That's why you go to a bookstore and most of it is like terribly written romance novels. Like go look how big the romance section is in any bookstore. It's like three yeah. times the size of any other single uh, genre of anything. Yeah, that's uh, certainly true. But I don't, I don't know. I feel like um, there was discussion about this with, uh, I'm friends, well, mutuals on Twitter with the guy who publishes Kirsova magazine, which is a current, uh, a pulp magazine that is still publishing on Amazon. Um, he talks about um, how the the lack of popularity of other genres, like genre fiction in general, is probably more to do with the fact that they have a very, uh, publishing tends to have a very sanitized uh 
formula that they'd like genre fiction to conform to and will only publish things that fit certain niches to hit certain target demographics. But the reality is most people who would read genre fiction aren't interested in those boxes that people typically approach. And also, like, they make a lot of these books boring. This is something, the same, same guy I talked with about this is that cover art for books has gone way downhill, has become super minimalist, and even ones that aren't minimalist, usually a genre will be tied to, like, a couple different archetypes of cover. Person with sword, spaceship and planet for sci-fi, and it doesn't jog the imagination like the height of, like, paperback genre fiction in the 70s, where you got people like Frank Frazetta and other such pulp artists and stuff throwing up these beautiful paintings for covers. I mean, they were, like, amazing. Yeah. Like, you look any of the old pulp covers. I actually really hate what you're talking about because I had to capitulate. So my novel went through a couple of different covers. Um, now, I would love to have, like, a pulp level, you know, cover, but I'm poor, so I can't afford and to commission. There's just not someone. a lot of guys who draw like that anymore. No, there aren't. And so uh, eventually I had to capitulate um, to the standard. And it's because it's a fantasy novel, you have to have here are the characters. They're like in some generic pose with a kind of, you know, whatever background. Um, and that's what you have to ask for, because that's what's going to, uh, let's say, meet the expectations so that enough people will bother picking it up. Right. Not even opening it. Right. But just like look at it because otherwise it's just eyes just fly right over top of it, which is a real uh, terrible shame. I, yeah. It, like, it's, uh, one of the only modern series I read uh, have, have a decent approach to their covers. They, they're still kind of like vaguely generic, but they have their own style because they get the same guy to, guys to do their covers all the time. And that's, uh, I think, Galaxy's Edge is the name of the series. They do like uh, Star Warsian space paramilitary stuff about like some kind of galactic foreign legion of dudes, but uh, they're, they're, it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, their covers are pretty decent. They've got the same style pretty consistently. Yeah. Well, aside from covers, because I want to transition in, from like traditional publishing conversation into in, indie publishing. But before we do, um, I think a good segue is to talk about pacing and expectations of pacing. And this fits well with the genre versus literary as well, though I think it actually crosses that boundary. So I want to talk a little bit about um, some uh, contradictory comments that I've gotten from all basically all of my work uh, if you're hearing that in the background that's there's a cat. A, yes a cat using the litter box uh, we're recording in nate's kitchen right now and there are two cats so causing chaos yes they, they would never bother me any other time <laughs> than when i'm trying to yeah. do something like this but, but pacing so i've heard people say that uh my stories are uh slow paced I've heard people say that they're very fast-paced and easy to read. And I've heard people say that they're slow and then, like, they pick up it and are fast. And it's, like, the same works. Like, yeah. people get all three reports. Um, and I, I I don't know. what What is your experience with people's tolerance for, uh, let's say, necessary 
expositive elements or for world building elements or character development, things like those versus like, you know, uh, I hate to use the cinematography term, but plot beats moving the, the story forward. I'm, um, I personally, in my own writing and showing it to the people that I do show writing to, uh, usually my experience is I am severely limited on exposition. Uh, I take a, philo uh, a philosophical approach of, like, don't explain anything, have people wonder, and then sit there and they either figure it out or uh, that's just a mysterious thing. It depends on the genre, personally. Uh, but uh, people tend to uh, have their eyes glaze over over long exposition which is why it's better to be kind of punchy about it or incorporate it into something interesting that is happening. Like, uh, I read, I write a lot of uh, sci-fi-ish stuff. So, like, if I want to describe a piece of technology, I wait until it's in use and, like, just break down, say, I have this uh, fancy weapon system, right? These guys use uh, uh, a chem-propellant coil gun or something. So I'll go for the first time some guy shoots it at somebody, I'll describe the process of how the mechanics work, the when then what the round does to people or whatever and stuff like that. But uh I find that the tolerance for that kind of thing, if you can work your exposition into what's happening, it goes down a lot smoother. Yeah, definitely. It makes it easier to swallow, but then that kind of excludes something like uh you know, tolerance for, I don't know, uh, a Russian, any Russian novel or short yeah. story. Like, you're, uh, yes. you're never going to get through them. Like, I don't know, The Brothers Kamerazov, I think it's like the first hundred pages of basically <laughs> exposition yeah. uh, before the plot actually starts getting anywhere. Um, or even like Nikolai Gogol, uh, some of his stories have a decent amount of long-winded setup before anything happens yeah um, um, or lovecraft like the shadows of innsmouth if you really notice like before he talks to um alan zadok really it's the most dry like oh, i'm looking at the architecture yeah. <laughs> like for i don't know how many pages yeah. um so why am I bringing all of that up? Uh, I, I guess I wanted examples of works where they did have, um, let's say in terms of plot structure, a very long building time in the beginning to set things up before the plot moves. Um, and I've also... Uh, it's, uh, what's... Uh... At the Mountains of Madness. Oh my god. Yeah. The whole Mount first half of the novel is this is how this expedition is going to go. The other half of the novel is this is how it went and how it all went wrong. I actually enjoyed that part of it though. Like I, I especially, you know, the um what would you say, Lovecraft speculating on technologies that allowed for this like very again, dry academic study into the that's Arctic. the 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 it's almost like a techno thriller-esque thing so like in genre fiction the techno thriller is something that is generally modern day or near future trying to extrapolate on all the things that are used in the process of something that is i i don't I guess I would say fairly mundane. So a techno thriller might be about a realistic portrayal of like 
these guys got to get in a space shuttle and stop this satellite from collapsing or this team of guys has to sneak into this country to, I don't know, shoot a terrorist or something. And But the emphasis is less on character and more all of the technical detail. And that used to be a very popular genre uh, like with mainstream appeal from like the mid-80s to the late 90s, but then kind of fell off. I have a thought that... Um depending on what kind of media people consume and what they're used to doing, that it has to do with shrinking attention spans. That could be a possibility. But uh, I have my own theories on stuff like that. Uh, I'm trying to... I didn't want... I don't want to go there yet. So Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll hold off on that. I want to wait until we talk more about Power Fantasy before I All talk right, about well, um, <laughs> I guess we could skim over, because I, I wanted to get your opinion on... Why, for instance, like, uh, so I remember way back when I first published Wong Smoke, you, uh, some of your buddies listened to the first chapter, and I remember you saying that it was, to them, both too slow and too serious, despite this novel being, like, the a faster pace, less serious. More, more silly things you've written, yeah, because there's more jokes in it and stuff. Um, yeah, and... I uh, think that has more to do with, like, some of my sample size, or uh, people who primarily read things like Terry Pratchett Anyway, okay, like Terry Pratchett, uh, are you familiar with Discworld at all? I'm familiar with, I haven't read it at all, okay. so I don't know what Discworld was like. a big hit with a lot of people I talk to. Um, they tend to be really into uh, comedic fantasy. Okay, I, I can see why that would immediately, yeah, because yeah, I, again, I, I have this kind of slow, dark, uh, almost uh, literary level build where I'm trying to, kind of being a little bit... But your characters are still kind of zany. That's mm -hmm. not serious. Yeah, but, well, I, my all my writing since I started this series has been in the same setting. Yeah. So almost all the characters are that way, perhaps except for uh, Cactus Man, uh, <laughs> which is funny because in in principle he's basically a cactor from Final Fantasy. <laughs> but I made him really tragic and dramatic and hyper serious and like. Uh, and when I read when I read his stuff, I almost uh, like I almost start weeping from the, the the just raw tragic emotion of like what happened to him mm -hmm. and his role in it. And um, yeah, but it's a fucking chapter. <laughs> but like, because sometimes it's fun to mix tragic and comedic elements. But also, but yeah, but I had uh, so you know. To those people, I thought myself was slow, but um, you know, recently, particularly, I noticed uh, women seem to think it's fast-paced, and that might be different—a difference between men and women's. It would probably have a different. I think it's mainly a difference in media diet. So, like, if a woman is ten prone to read things that are um, more character focused, as they tend to do, they like the character interactions. Um, you can see this in the things that women tend to write, like a uh, coffee shop AU fan fiction. <laughs> Wait, AU? Yeah, alternate you know, coffee mm, shop. Okay. AU, yeah. So, uh, in which like the characters are all just hanging out in a coffee shop, and it's fun. It's all the character stuff, and they're doing all the fun stuff. Women love that shit. Anyway, well, that explains uh, the, like this fact that the slice of life genre for if you guys don't know i'm like a terrible weeb i try really hard to i don't try that hard to hide it but <laughs> I, try, I try somewhat to, to make it not obvious but when i was in uh, i think middle school is when i um there's an anime i liked it was azamanga dio but like <laughs> yeah laugh please laugh i'll be Tiffany would will appreciate that you like azamanga 
I actually still like it to this day. It was good. But the, the whole genre is almost always written by uh, by women, like the, in terms of the mangaka. Um, and so that makes perfect sense because that's all it is, is here are characters interacting with each other. There's not really a plot. Um, okay, so that probably explains the difference. So, in but perception. the opposite side of the coin where men say that your stuff is kind of slow, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I'm I'm gonna go on a limb on a bit of a tangent here to say that they don't really make books for men anymore. Not in the sense that like a lot a lot of uh, fiction tends to be slow prodding aimed at a general audience, while uh, like old men's adventure novels tended to be faster paced for a reason. But also like most men's stories have transferred to like the medium of video games, <laughs> like yeah, the nice. like the stories of like uh, adventures and soldiers and stuff just doesn't exist much in the literary world outside of nonfiction where people are like writing memoirs and stuff about like going on an adventure or serving in a war or some something like that. Yeah, that, but, that does make sense. Um, what was that? It was just about to language pacing. Uh, we'll, we'll move on to talk about um, indie indie stuff, particularly uh, power fantasies and, and wish fulfillment, unless that my other thought that was in my head comes back. Um, so I have this uh what do, I, what do i call it i see a lot of wish fulfillment a lot of um power fantasies and i guess a, a more interesting question is why is it that they tend to be so cringeworthy when they don't necessarily have to be the example i'll give is conan because Conan is Robert E. Howard, the man Robert E. Howard desperately wished that he was. Yeah. But it's fun to read Conan. Like, I don't feel like, oh, Robert, come on. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, there's very few moments where you're like, this is like a cringe self-insert. Like, or even Lovecraft with Randolph Carter. Yeah. Like, I didn't feel like, come on, Lovecraft. Like, obviously you knew it was him. Yeah. And like, but, but... Oftentimes when I do, like uh, coming back to the Dresden files, Harry Dresden is definitely Jim Butcher. He looks like Jim Butcher. He dresses like Jim Butcher. Jim, Jim, Bo yeah, Jim Butcher would have dressed and eats how Jim Butcher would have ate at the time when he was writing it in college in grad school. And like, it's like, it's just completely, like, he even has the same thoughts that someone who's nerdy and wishes that he could take vengeance on the uh people around him purely through force of will do it's like if only i could just use magic and just explode in a fire but then when he's uh, henry dresden is like when people scare me i tend to get angry and hit things it's not a good reaction there's like i'm pretending it's a flaw but if i'm not careful i can just incinerate someone in a fireball and it's like <laughs> this is just what you wish yeah, was the case. I've noticed that with a lot of people who wrote, who write like wizard centric stuff, but uh, that's that's another thing. Um, anyway, on the topic of power fantasy, uh, side tangent: if you want to make a bunch of money, just write like self inserty weeb harvest moon books and put them on Amazon. Like, uh, I was making so much money. I was talking with somebody about it the other day, but that that's that's a change. Give me uh. Sorry, my phone's going off. But um This is a professional podcast. <laughs> yes, it's a very professional podcast. I didn't turn off my phone. But uh 
So Harvest Moon. Yeah, Harvest is, Moon. Uh, because like those make a lot of money for some reason. Uh, I can't comprehend why. Uh, but I was talking with another guy about it. But uh, other than that, so oh, I find that probably most authors probably have at least one character in their repertoire in fiction that is very self-inserty. Yeah. So, but, why do you think it's cringeworthy sometimes, and then other times it's perfectly acceptable? Because it's definitely like somewhere it's like again, I don't mind, even though Conan is like way he's both self insert and wish fulfillment and power fantasy all at the same time. Like the most biggest muscular dude who's super invincible, who all the women just like swoon over. Right? You would expect that to be like eye rolling, but it's not eye rolling. So, like, why why is that? Yeah, uh, I think it's it has a lot to do with like um, uh, just mastery of craft. I guess it's like people will write wish fulfilling characters without like a um, the, they won't challenge them enough. And I, I typically think that like the good wish fulfillment power fantasy characters are adequately challenged, even though you know they're going to win. So like. Uh, you got Conan, you got James Bond and stuff. Like, those characters go through ordeals still. So, like, there's the difference, there's a difference between power fantasy and what I'll call competence myth. It's like, everybody, so like, a character in fiction who is typically thought of as a wish fulfillment character, but is actually good, tends to just be uber competent. Rather than, like, the the bad ones, the universe bends around them to accommodate their will. So mm, yeah, I can see. I think you see this a lot in isekai anime and the stuff inspired by that in like indie fiction, because due to the nature of what I discussed earlier, people who like other mediums wanting to create things like the thing they like, but instead like. They just write. Yeah, a great way to compare that. Um, so, again, an ex-girlfriend story. Um, I had shown her uh, Dot Hack Sign, which is an isekai anime. Mm -hmm. But it is an early one, and the themes are entirely reversed from, let's say, uh, what I, we, I tried to show her, which I hadn't seen before, so it was like new for both of us, which we only got, I think, three episodes in, and she said I can't do it anymore, <laughs> which is Sword Art Online. Yeah, um... So, Sword Art Online is infamously bad about, like, being a power fantasy, but uh, there's, a, there's a parody series on YouTube that redoes the series. It's, it's one of those old abridged series oh, style man. things. But that people have argued that it's actually, like, a better written show than the original. Well, that's hard to, to do, man. Yeah, <laughs> due to it exploring, like, like parodying the tropes. Yeah. And, and I guess that's really um, that that changes the idea of a self insert, right? So I can imagine, and actually this is true for a lot of well written anime where like the director was I don't know depressed and <laughs> working through shit, and then just basically makes a bunch of characters that are really just uh, little aspects of himself being depressed. Uh, Evangelion, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. And then like, how do you get through the depression? Like, what sim symbolism comes up? Uh, but I do want I do want to 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 diff to compare dot hack sign and sword art online because I think it would be a good comparison for a lot of um, you know beginning and indie writers who are, who are very unlikely or 
it's unlikely they're going to listen to this, but it would be useful for them to know. So dot hex sign. Uh, the plot is that um, Tsukasa is the protagonist, and he's trapped in the game world, right? Okay, that's the isekai thing. But the thing is, uh, Tsukasa doesn't want to be in the game world, isn't particularly... Uh, this is not a power fantasy in this case, um, and is, is was only playing the game to begin with as a form of escapism, to escape real-world trauma, that the whole show is about Tsukasa getting over so uh, that he can go back to the... Oh, there's some controversial shit here we can talk about. Uh, <laughs> nothing to do with writing, but we should. So Tsukasa is actually, um, in real life, a girl and chooses to become a boy in order to uh, dissociate herself from her traumatic <laughs> real life. Oh, no. uh, just in the same way that Subaru... Uh, separates herself from the fact that she's like disabled in a wheelchair by going in and playing a game where uh, she had you'd say can pretend that she's not limited by real world limitations anymore um so that's that in and of itself is <laughs> yeah um a thing where but comparing it to sword art online where they go into the game in order to like feel competent and even though they're technically like, trying to escape it's only because of some plot contrivance where they think they're going to die if they don't. Yeah. Whereas, like, in order to grow as human beings, like, the whole point is, like, you're trapped in here because there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Right? It's entirely um, it's entirely different. And I think that that approach to self-insert is one I've even used in my own work, which is, um, well, sort of you make a character that goes through a trial that you yourself want to overcome and you see how that character might overcome that trial. And then you try to emulate it in your real life, which obviously that last part doesn't go in your fiction. Um, But that's, I think that does make a good, it's the right word. Um, It makes a good self insert. I don't know that that exactly makes a good power fantasy uh, or perhaps the power fantasy is by nature bad and like it's whether the competence myth is like the uh proper manifestation of that i don't know i i am not an expert enough to know i just know that uh the good examples of this are few and far between but the ones that are good tend to be uh long lasting popular fixtures or franchises or something that gets you know reused a lot while things that don't do this very well are forgotten dustbins products but uh yeah well you know with actually with one exception so something that isn't a very good uh power fantasy but ends up being really popular for some reason is the gore series which we talked a little bit about before the podcast you mentioned it to me so, so tell me all about it I know so like Gore is a pulp science fiction sword and planet sort of thing. So if you're familiar with John Carter of Mars, which uh, probably not a lot of people are. So like uh, it's the idea of sword and planet is like what if fantasy fiction, but it's set on a different planet. So uh, it's so in the original story that like kind of coined this idea, it's like you take a person from our world and he ends up somehow on Mars and he has to get involved in these alien cultures and go on adventures, but he's also this heroic adventurous cavalry, Western cavalryman and stuff, but he's also a swashbuckler and it's all good fun. You should probably read it. It's a good story. Anyway, but we're talking about Gore instead, which is like John Carter, but also a fetish novel. So... (laughs) 
It's like these aliens have this other planet that's like a zoo for humans where uh, they try to maintain humanity in its most natural state. But that ends up being like primarily a vehicle for the art uh, the 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 writer's fetishes. So like women are uber submissive to the point of parody, and like the entire planet is like a BDSM planet. <laughs> you see this with some modern uh, power fantasy works where they're trying to be based, and like it's cool to be based, but it's not cool when it's obvious. That what you're doing is having a caricature of like you know you might imagine like the archetypal effeminate woman like like all the women in Conan like I always go back to Conan and they are like probably really the people in Conan are what people were like in prehistory I can guarantee like that's what it seems like they're re- everyone's really emotional yes um, and very much like whatever they are they're very much whatever that is so if like you're a young woman you're like hyper sexualized hyper um, jealous hyper like expressive like uh, and if you're a man it's like hyper aggressive um, are you familiar with binarial mind theory Say that again? Bicameral mind theory. Bicameral mind theory. No, I know nothing. It's it's vaguely pseudoscientific, but there was an old theory that um, this dude was reading the Iliad, right? And he noticed that there wasn't a lot of introspection in the Iliad. People just were very emotional, passionate, and did things under the influence of, like, gods and spirits. So he theorized... That Earth, like by that point, the human brain had not yet developed what we know of as introspection, or was only starting to. So the chambers of their mind communicated in the way that is portrayed in mythology. People had this voice in their head that was telling them things, and they thought it was the gods, and they were just acting irrationally the whole time. Except sometimes the gods told them to stop doing dumb shit. <laughs> So uh, that is actually kind of validated by Carl <laughs> Jung and uh, Archetypes in the Clubs of Unconscious. So it's like volume nine, part one. He talks about primitive man in exactly that way yeah. where and it actually the spooky thing is Jung would say that we haven't actually changed. We just think that it has. So human beings would experience primitive man would experience his own instincts and emotions as foreign entities. Right, which is why um, the superstitions of the past are always, you know, things that are inanimate having intentionality put into them. And if you look at children, like young children, they do that. If you don't tell them not to do that, that is their innate instinctual response to the world. Like if, and you see some adults will still do this, where you bump your, you stub your toe on a, uh, I don't know, like a counter, not a counter, I guess, but a cabinet on the floor, or whatever. And you curse at the cabinet, and you it's, uh, you get mad at it, and then some people even like you know fuck this cabinet. It's like, <laughs> yeah. and like kids really feel that way. Like they feel wronged by objects and things. A and strange modern philosopher I read had suggested that the first religion of all man, even sh- uh, even from children, is a form of animism, in which they associate. Uh, positive positivity or malice to objects as if they are beings. So yeah, and I mean that's exactly essentially what Yoon says that people did and still do. We're just uh, way better at uh, rationalizing now. Yeah. Way better at it since the uh, Enlightenment. 
but it does make sense. How can we tie this back into fiction? So we were talking about the uh, hyper archetypes in present in Conan and how so, yeah. that's not the same thing as the the harem anime. The harem Every, everybody everybody's writing harem anime now. It's very common. This kind of ties into our incel podcast. If you haven't watched that one, it's super popular compared well, relative to all white podcast, but it was a really decent one. This one might be popular too. Uh, Let's see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, there is a, a tendency to want to do that, and they let's let's take a a dive into harem anime, right? So, okay, so modern man is I'm 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 I wanted to say a line, but I, I, it's kind of uncouth. Anyway, say it anyway. Modern man is un, as pathetic, unfuckable. Anyway, so. well, in a sense, that would be the case. So. Um, if you guys don't know this listening, um, sexual dimorphism in a species is directly indicative of polygamy. The more polygamous a species is, the uh, more sexually dimorphic that species is. And actually humans are fairly, relative to other species, sexually dimorphic, which indicates that when we are hunter-gatherers throughout most of our human history, that um, the norm for reproduction was... Uh, well, that Pareto distribution we talked about with the incel problem, right? Uh, now, a lot of that was solved by constant states of war. <laughs> yeah, if there were barely any men left because you were all fighting and conquering and stealing things, then this these problems didn't arise. Which is funny because... In the 21st century. Yeah, so we I think we actually have this instinct that just goes unfulfilled and unacknowledged mm -hmm. that, like, that is... Uh, let's say that had been the state of nature of almost everyone's ancestors for most of their evolutionary history. And so we see, as you said, the unfuckable man uh, yeah. and him and his desire to and people catering to his desire in his monkey brain. Be like, man, it would be really cool if I just uh, I was this cool guy who uh, if I was like the Shinji. Well, no, Shinji isn't cool, but like yeah, I was actually gonna bring up Shinji because because I I've noticed like the harem anime from like the before times, like they were a lot like relative to what comes out now. Yeah, there were like, a lot more like there might be like two of the harem girls who are actually interested in the protagonist, and the rest are just kind of there yeah. and like. The protagonist, Intenshi Muya, like, wasn't he actually competent in something before they did all the spinoffs? Like, the, like, the, I know there's like a modern, modern spinoff. I remember him not, fighting a bad guy and actually. I have only, like, whenever it comes to, like, Evangelion stuff, I know the memes and I've seen some of the movies. Evangelion is definitely not a harem. Uh, at least not the original. Yeah. They did with the remake, but but like, uh, it, it's a good example of like a a story about. So there's a man at the center. He's got all these girls around him, and he's going on adventures and stuff specifically. And like, I don't, I don't, I don't consume a lot of weeb stuff, but weeb stuff is part of like the the young collective unconscious of the modern Western man. So I I have no choice but to engage with it on some capacity. Yeah, you kind of have to. It's, it's, like, it's infected a lot of indie writing. It's just our own culture has become so bad at like having something for our men to read or watch at this point. And like there are a few exceptions, but I'm saying as a general rule, I, I, I get why uh, people utterly reject Western in favor of Eastern culture. But uh, my solution is I return to pulps and garbage like that. Yeah, if you go backwards in time, there's plenty of stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, 
you know, I went back and read Huckleberry Finn and uh, Tom Sawyer. Those are like, you know, Tom Sawyer is more, uh, I think, more of a kid's novel, directed kid's novel. But Huckleberry Finn, even as an adult, is is hilarious. It's in, uh, it's got a lot of depth to it. Um, but yeah, you, when we're engaging with these, um, let's say these fantasies, I guess this is kind of more on the wish fulfillment end where it's very clear that someone is doing this. Do you think, you know, to get back into the psychology of it, do you think that these writers are aware? I think they are. Um, I would hope so. I mean, I would hope so too, but part of me thinks they they know they're writing a fantasy, but um, the, the problem with a lot of those is like, a lot of these particular, especially fantasies involving like dudes getting a lot of women, are written by people who don't have a lot of experience talking to women. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm as misogynist as they come within reason. Okay, <laughs> I, I still think it's important to write women well. <laughs> Otherwise, your story comes off as like goofy. Some of the stuff I had read, uh, again, to my ex-girlfriend, um, she would have these comments like, why are the men women and the women men? That's just, that, that's all. That's that was a lot. That was like a lot. Like, that was the stories. Yeah. Yeah, it was a ton. Um, almost none of them had the men actually doing anything masculine, but they had like, uh, the men were really passive. And then the uh, female characters were essentially uh they weren't necessarily like the the girl boss uh stereotype that we hear a lot about now but they were like the assertive assertive jesus assertive uh feminist women yeah, right like modern feminism has this kind of overcorrection right where like they want to have men and women seen as equals so they make everybody just the inverse of what they were and it comes off as very unnatural barely anybody likes it but we're it's constantly fed to us until there's nothing else to consume yeah this is particularly true with and we can use this as a segue um to the the segue to the pornographic nature of a lot of um let's say indie work because there's no there's no gatekeeper i didn't know how bad of a problem this was like i knew it was there and like you like i mentioned it in grad school so obviously it was in my face a little bit but it's actually according to other people who t- actually interact with other people and not just cloisters themselves isolated away like a mad hermit. So, like, this stuff's really started to come to fruition in mainstream, uh, like, fiction around the 70s and 80s. There was an organization called, I, I think it's the SFWA. I could be getting the acronym wrong. But there was an organization of people who are, like, a weird circle of perverts who uh, promoted like really subtle fetish fiction and like of course to some degree it's natural to want to include things that appeal to your brain in your fiction especially if you're just like writing as a hobby but the way they went about it was kind of uh i i could probably do a whole segment of a show or something on these guys because a lot of them ended up being really awful people some of them even went to jail so uh (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to save that one because yeah. I think we're short on time. But I, I wanted to to mention the um, let's say the giving giving the attributing male sexuality to female characters in particular has been something um, 
that is hyper prevalent. Yeah, right. Um, like I, it's. Uh, you know, I think that I that that could be a whole episode thing too. The the sci it's kind of psyop on uh, women in society, but uh. <laughs> So is your explanation of psyop as the trend that what's what is I think the there's like there's a psyop in society to make women think they want stuff like that, but and then it bleeds into fiction. It's not it's a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Well, my question is like, do the men writing this believe that that is the way that it actually is? no? So like the men writing like certain characters that are just like for a lack there of a better word like. They're men, so they're like martial sluts, okay? They're like strong, but also sexually promiscuous or whatever. It's just like, uh, they, they're writing, so they want to write a strong woman for feminist appeal, but they end up writing a man, and they know that, that they know that's what they're doing. Because they're like, they're writing the same story they would have read, wrote otherwise, but they're flipping the genders sort of thing. Mm there's that i've also seen an uh, attempt to to not be woke to do the same thing but then to leave the, the sexuality like again the, the male sexuality so you have a character that's supposed to be like i'm a traditional female except that like uh i'm would say not sexually reserved at all yeah like i see that a lot like yeah that's in a weird way even when there's there's a there's a word for that and like man i keep falling uh, we somehow every time i'm here we keep talking about women anyway i think it has probably due to the times yeah it's sad at times anyway so like there's i forget the the name of it but there's this psychological condition where um the 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 male desire for the virginal slut right the desire to have this woman who is like sexually adept and all that stuff and carnivorous in their appetites but are ultimately only for you and have not been soiled by the touch of other men so if you want to do this right i think uh because i was just an example and it shows my weaviness but uh princess mononoke is the right example of that <laughs> and the right example is you get all those things except that like she's going to deem you as being unworthy and also be like kind of extremely hard to get <laughs> you have to be as devoted and like self-sacrificing and brave as uh the prince in 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 general like yeah okay so in stories where you're writing trad women that's definitely important you have to play them up as hard to get high court (laughs) but yeah uh otherwise it it's it comes off as artificial and unnatural and you're just you're writing the uh literary equivalent of those uh those cornfield uh pictures on twitter and instagram (laughs) and that's not good all right, so uh, it looks like we're running out of time. Uh, Nate, is there anything we kind of ran all over the place? So we talked about... Yeah, I should have prepared for this better. No, no, <laughs> it's fine. You know, it's, it's you know, someone I'm sure will enjoy just listening to us ramble forever about writing. Um, but I want to kind of do a little bit of a wrap-up. So we started out talking about, um, let's see, was it modern fiction, or genre fiction versus literary fiction, kind yeah. of denoting that there's not really really a strong distinction between those two things due to the fact that that's not what a theme is yeah it's designed to artificially like segment stuff into serious intellectual writing for smart people 
which is not, not really the case. <laughs> yeah, and we talked about style and editorial standards and traditional publishing, basically just, uh, making formulaic, generic works uh, out of and, and killing personal style. Um, we move that over to, uh, we talked about pacing a little bit and what people can tolerate. Um, and then we moved in any talk about wish fulfillment and then uh talked a lot about wish fulfillment. Yeah, we talked a lot about wish fulfillment. Uh the, the long and short of that is uh I would like people to be a little bit more aware if that's what you're doing. And if if you're writing a uh wish fulfillment character, make them have flaws, give them some uh challenges. That's probably a good thing to have. It's like uh, Yeah, make this a person that I'm not going to roll my eyes at. Like, that's your question. If someone reads this, are their eyes going to be rolling like, oh, okay. So, like, uh, Conan wasn't very bright because he's a friggin' caveman, and James Bond is, like, a detached psychopath with emotional issues, at least in the books. So, do that. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, if you're an author out there, keep writing. Um, if you are struggling with any of the... Uh, things that we mentioned here that are terrible, then you know what you should do? You should come to me, uh, <laughs> wildislelit.com uh, slash, I think it's editing or editor, or edit, I can't remember. Go to my website, it says editing, um, hire me. I will do my best to help you shape up your story so that it doesn't look like that. Um, it, it's not, let's say, uh, a cringe-worthy um, wish fulfillment power fantasy where you're trying to be based and you end up coming out as a product of fourth wave feminism. Um, <laughs> other than that, you could, if you're bored or you need something to read, you check out my novel, uh, Wand Smoke Broken. It's on my website. You can find it. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, don't miss out my Christmas story this Christmas Eve. I'm going to put that live on my uh, website, probably also YouTube. I'm not sure, but you could definitely find it. Follow me on social media at Marquise D. Little on whatever social media I'm on there, except I don't really post to Getter and Gap because like no one's on there. No one knows, couldn't find any followers. So I thought, <laughs> it's not that I'm posted as platforms, but just like there's nobody there. Um, at least, uh, at least I no one who cared enough to follow me on there. That's what I should say. Um, yeah, get that Christmas story if you're a Wheeling local. Uh, January third, Ohio County Public Library from five thirty to six thirty. Check out my uh, first lecture in the philosophy of writing series. Don't be illiterate anymore. Uh, be literate. Be capable of thinking. Don't be a drone. Don't be a mook. Um, uh, I've been posting about manners and mookery this week. That's what I have scheduled. So you'll know what I'm talking about. If you follow me on my social media, you can see all my little aphorisms or on my website. Okay. I've been chilling for like five minutes. Um, thank you guys for listening. This has been really rambly. I hope you guys enjoy it and, uh, see you next time.